Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is it is good to be back. It's uh, I feel a little rusty though, you know, when you're out for that long. But uh, it's I, I just I wanted to share a little bit about the last three months from our perspective, and um, and then I want to jump into a text that we are going to look at for this Christmas season, which is Luke chapter two. And I wanted to introduce it first, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about my sabbatical, and then we're going to start this message, and we probably won't finish it today. We'll finish it next week. But Christmas really is the hope of the world. When you think about it, uh, Christmas is not just a season, it's a hope. Uh, the, the advent of Jesus is the beginning of something that's developing, something that's going to happen, that's going to... Uh, impact every aspect of the world. In Hebrew, the idea of hope is really important. And the word is tikva, T-I-Q-V-A-H. And the reason why I point that out is because hope is not merely something that you hope happens. The idea from the Hebrew perspective, tikva, means literally to expect. It, it comes from um, kava, and kava means to wait, to wait expectantly. And I want to put us in this, this perspective this morning that we are waiting expectantly for something to happen. That's what Christmas is about, is waiting expectantly for what we believe will happen that will truly impact every aspect, every part of our world and our existence. Tikva, expectation of a real hope that something is gonna change. Do we have that? I mean, do you live with that? Are you experiencing this season with a sense of waiting expectantly with that kind of a hope? When you move into the New Testament, the word elpis is in Greek, Elpis is actually hope. And it reminds me of in Hebrews 11 where it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, what we hope for is the reality of something happening. It's not, it's not mystical. It's not like we, we, we just kind of go through this tradition. We truly believe something is about to happen that's going to change things. And that's how we're expected to live our Christian life, with this sense of hope. Do you live your, your life with this sense of hope? It should, it should be the kind of at the front of who you are. You live with a hope. You constantly live with a hope. Abraham had this hope. All throughout the Old Testament, they had this hope, this belief that I'm experiencing what God has promised right now. That's hope. When you actually have a hope, you're experiencing something that God has promised. And that's what Christmas is about. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at this expectation, this anticipation of a future event. And so we put our faith and our confidence in that hope because it really will change something. And I want to tell you about a story, a kind of a Christmas miracle story. But first, before we get into our, our chapter of Luke, 
which is the story of the coming of Christ. The early story. Matthew, of course, tells the same story from a different perspective. We're going to look at Luke's perspective over the next several weeks. But I wanted to, first of all, thank our amazing River staff. Uh, it, is, it is truly an honor to be able to step away for three months, September, October, November, and to change things up and do something that I don't normally do. And that's exactly what Denise and I did for that period of time. And we are grateful. We really are grateful for an incredible, incredible staff. And I'm looking around all over and seeing our staff that um, if you, do you ever read Extreme Ownership? The book Extreme Ownership is written by a Navy SEAL, Jocko uh, Willink. And Jocko in that book basically says there's no such thing as bad teams, just bad leaders, all the way down to the very last person. And we have an amazing team. We have this amazing church because we have great leaders. What makes a great church is our great leaders. And we have an amazing staff. And I just want to thank the staff personally for allowing me to step out. You guys have done a great job, a fantastic job of leading this church. So it has truly been an honor to uh, be able to not worry, to step away. No more emails, no meetings, and to do something totally different and know that everything's being taken care of. Not only taken care of, it's thriving. All of our ministries. <coughs> so thank you. So what did I do? Well, my wife and I got in a little argument the other day, <clears throat> and it was over the Christmas card that we're not sending out this year. And I was kind of disturbed about that, and she said, well, why don't you do it this year? You, you know... You've been off for the last three months. Now, the way I interpreted that was you haven't done anything for three months because that's the way I think, okay? So it wasn't that. She didn't say that, but that's the way I interpreted it. And of course, then it turned into a fight. We stopped talking to each other about the Christmas card and about everything else. But it gave me a chance to kind of think through, okay, what in the world did I do for the last three months? And I, and I began to justify the last three months, which I don't need to do. I don't need to justify them. But yet in my own mind, I kind of did. And I thought about, well, all the grandkids, we have five grandchildren and one on the way. So that's uh, almost six. And we spent a lot of time with our grandkids, watching them, enjoying time with them. I thought of uh, the travels that we did. We, we took the month of October, about 20 days in October, and went to Spain and went through southern Spain and over to Portugal and North Africa and had just an incredible experience uh, seeing so much, but also experiencing the culture and people and learning so much more about the history of travel and navigation and what came out of Europe. <clears throat> so it was just an incredible, incredible time of, of travel for about 20 days. September went by really fast with some visitations with some of our family and a few getaways. Um, I read a probably, I don't know, 20, 25 books. I read Ulysses. I'm justifying the three months, right? I read Sutri by Cormac McCarthy. I read some amazing books, had a great time just reading and changing things up. Um, a lot of walks, workouts, riding my gravel bike on the strand, all sorts of wonderful things. Oh, and by the way, I wrote a book. So I wrote a 75,000 word book 
during the last 30 days, about six to eight hours a day, I sat up in my office and wrote. And sometimes 10. Gained five pounds and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was so refreshing. It was so different. Never had that experience before in my life. And I wrote a book on the life of Elijah. I had done the research over uh, eight years ago during our first sabbatical and I kind of rewrote it with a whole new perspective now eight years later. So it's been sitting in the back of my mind for eight years and I've been wanting to get it done. And now with a new perspective, having gone through the the last eight years have been pretty rough years in terms of some significant events in our lives, mostly health issues for me. I have a different perspective. And then I brought in all that research and began writing. And I am grateful for that. Um, yet I feel like I really have accomplished something. Um, but what I've learned, baby, just a couple thoughts about what I've learned. And then I want to jump into our text this morning. One of the things I've learned having three months to do something totally different is that if you don't have time for your priorities in your daily average life, just the normal course of life, if you don't have time for those priorities, you never will. I thought, oh, all this time I'm going to do things so differently. And sure enough, I was in a different routine and schedule. But yet what I realize is the priorities that I live by are the priorities I live by, whether I'm busy or, or I'm not busy. You decide what those are. And those became very, very clear and apparent to me. Um, that was just one quite small little observation. The other one is I have learned something from the life of Elijah. And I've been thinking about it for over eight years. Life undulates. It's not a straight line to the top. And that's the life of Elijah. You know, Elijah is the prophet in the ninth century who slayed the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, but he also found himself deep in a cave near Mount Sinai, wanting to kill him, just wanting to die. He just wanted to die. He said, Lord, take my life. And, and we don't know what to do with the extremes of victory and defeat. And we wonder how they play into the Christian life. And so my book is all about kind of helping us understand that life undulates and it's not a straight line that tie, uh, all the way to the top, that there are peaks and there are valleys. And what I've discovered from my research is that probably most people average will probably live about 30 years of their life in a transition between one and the other. 30 years of your life will be transitioning from one experience to another, from one high to one low, back to one high to one low. 30 years, possibly five different transitions, and it's learning how to live and navigate that kind of a life, I think is the Christian life. And Elijah shows how, us how. So life is lived in the valleys and it's relished on the mountains. So more about that to come. Um, I'll, I'll end it there. I have one other thought, but I'll, I'll save that. So it was a great experience. It really was lots of key learnings, lots of, uh, renewed time with the Lord and, um, um, just a chance to do something that I, I I've always wanted to do desired. And, and, uh, it was a labor. It really was a labor of love, but it was hard work, but it was, 
it's rewarding to be able to set, sit down and do something that you've always wanted to do. And uh, so thank you for that. In Luke chapter two, we have the story of Jesus's birth and it brings great hope and the world needs hope. The world lives in darkness and the light shines greatest in the darkness. It says in Luke chapter two, now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a consensus be taken on all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register on the sen- for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up to Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and family of David. Very important. While they were there, the days were completed for them to give birth. And she gave birth, that is, the woman entrothed to, Ju- to, to Joseph, Mary. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him on a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And that's all the information Luke gives us at the very beginning of the story. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know he's the mighty counselor, he's the Messiah, he's the savior of the world and all these things. And the name of Jesus will be really important in this text. But I want you to see the beginning the beginning is really important. And that's all I want you to see this morning is the beginning of the story of the life of Jesus. It begins in darkness. It's almost like the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth and there was darkness. And then God creates what? He creates light in the midst of darkness. This is the very beginning of the Bible. In John chapter one, John kind of does a reiteration of the Genesis one story telling us that in the beginning, God, and then Jesus come who Jesus comes, who is the word who was with God and is with is God. And he becomes the light of the world and the world doesn't see him because it lives in darkness. And so we have this incredible picture of the world in darkness and Jesus is literally born into this darkness. Why is that important? It's important because of this reason. In darkness, we can see great light. It is only in darkness that we can see the light. And the darker it is, the lighter it shines. And that's the important aspect of this, this story. In Luke chapter two, verse 10, the shepherds will be introduced to the angel of the Lord. And it will say, which is this very famous passage that we all know here in verse 10, it will say, the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. But prior to that, in verse nine, the angel suddenly stands before them before the announcement. And what happens is the glory of the Lord shines around them and they were terribly frightened. The glory of the Lord shone. The star leads the way. The light emanates the hope. (coughs) The hope is Jesus. In darkness, there will be light. And I've been thinking about this. 
And I want to just look briefly at one aspect, and the next week I'll look at the other one. But I want to tell you why we need hope. The reason why we need hope is because a myth just won't do. A great story just won't do. A great tradition. We need the real hope. You need the real hope. <coughs> so, on my side of the family, we have 15 grand... Um, my, my, if my parents were still alive, they'd have 15 grandchildren. And of those 15... There's almost 15 children from those. So my nieces and nephews have about almost 15 children. It's a lot of kids. There's one in particular that has been born into struggle. My oldest sister, Terry, our oldest sister, my sister Judy's here this morning and knows the whole story. But Ava Marie and little Liam were born at 29 weeks in a hospital, emergency surgery. April is my, our niece, and she survived, and the two children survived. And we began praying for them. Ava uh, obviously did much. She, she started doing better, and uh, Liam was struggling. Liam in the last three months has only known struggle. He was born into darkness. Uh, he's been struggling for his life. And we've been praying. And for some reason, God has given me a burden for this little guy. Never met him. Hope to meet him tomorrow. I'm going to drive down to Riverside and see him for the first time. Um, and I don't know why, but God has put a burden on my heart for this little guy. Yes, he's part of my family, but we have so many. I've got, we've got grandkids, and all my siblings have grandkids. You know, so we're, we've got a big family, but this one particular child <coughs> has reminded me of the story of Christ. He has only known struggle in his life. And he's hanging on. They've intubated him, and he's having trouble breathing. And then he was able to go home, and then he was brought back to the hospital, and they tried to get him into UCLA and into chalk, and there's just no room. There's no room for a new case in these large hospitals. And so here's a child that can't get to where he needs to get in order to survive. And God has just kind of sensed, I don't know, I sense this burden to not only pray for him, but to believe that God has something great for his life. And that's hope. That is Christian hope. That is Christmas hope that only Jesus can bring into a world that needs it desperately. And I could tell that story. You could probably tell that story 10 times over with people that we know that need that kind of hope. And I want you to see the setting in just the very, very first part of this story this morning before we go to communion. And here's the first point. In this passage, we see that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The census was to be taken in all the land. And this was the first census taken while Crinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on their way to register. They were told what to do and they had to do it. This is the Roman Empire. This was a time of great difficulty for the Jewish people. 
They no longer had their sovereignty. They no longer had a nation. They could not do as they pleased. They were under the control and subjugation of Rome. And what I want you to see in here is that Jesus is literally born at a great time of political and spiritual darkness. That Jesus came into the world at a time of darkness. Yes, it was the Pax Romana. There was peace in the Roman Empire, but yet there was great darkness. By 63 BC, Pompey, the general, conquered Jerusalem. In 63 BC, Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. Caesar Augustus, by 27 BC, takes over supreme power over all the lands. He chooses Herod, this Idumean who's half Jew, half Gentile, as kind of a puppet king, a tetrarch. A tetrarch is uh, a ruler of a fourth. <coughs> and Herod will rule over the Jews. Why I tell you that is because it's all here in the text. It's right here in your Bible. This is not just a story. This is not just some fanciful thing that you might hold on to this Christmas season. Hey, I'm a sucker for the Christmas season. James is really a sucker for the Christmas season. All year round, he lives in the Christmas season. But at the time of when December comes around, I am a sucker for it. I drive around looking for signs of Christmas. I'm sure you do too. I saw my first Christmas tree on a walk uh, before Thanksgiving and took a picture of it. Like, that was so cool. So I'm a sucker for that, but I need something more. You need something more. The world needs something more because it is in darkness. Very similar to the world in which Jesus was born, there is darkness all around us. And I want us to start there because out of the darkness, the light will shine its brightest. And that is a theme throughout the entire Bible that out of great darkness, the light shines its best. The greater the darkness, the greater the light. <clears throat> but first of all, you need to see in the fact that when Jesus was born into a great time of political and spiritual struggle and darkness, this is historical. This account is historical. Jesus was born into an historical setting in the Roman Empire. <coughs> I can't tell you how many people I know are still struggling with that. They're struggling with the fact that Jesus is, is more than a myth, more than a good teacher, more than an individual, maybe in, a con maybe in somebody's imagination, that we gather together every Sunday to worship what we think might be potentially true. No, we gather every Sunday to worship who we know is true. It actually happened. Here it is set in a historical setting. <coughs> this actually happened. Jesus can actually be found in the pages of history. I just reread a little book that um, Lee Strobel, who I was on staff with at two different churches, a friend, he wrote The Case for Christmas, a great little book. If you are looking for something to read this December, that would help 
kind of boost your strength and your faith and your confidence. Because what you probably hear from so many people around you that might potentially be skeptics is the fact that this stuff really didn't happen or it's really not that reliable or what we're about to read was really not that secure of information. He cites Karen Armstrong who wrote a book called <coughs> um, The History of God. And in the history of God, she says, basically, these things were written so late after Jesus that they're really not that historical. We really don't know what happened. We can't put a lot of confidence because if it's over 70 years after Christ came and went, we don't know whether that's myth or whether that's tradition or whether it's really true. But what Lee Strobel does is he goes around the country interviewing some of the greatest scholars, historical scholars of the first century, and establishes the fact that the gospel writers chose to wrote the story of Jesus right into history because it's true. Why would you put a myth in the midst of an historical time frame with so much detail if it were not true? the writings that we have go back and some of the sayings that we have of Jesus go back to within two years of the time in which he was resurrected. Jesus's life and ministry began being recorded within two years. Some of his sayings, some of the truths about who Jesus was within two years. We believe history about We believe the history about Caesar, Genghis Khan, all sorts of historical figures with such little information, and yet we believe them to be as fact, but we question Jesus. And if you question Jesus, you're going to question the hope. Um, But I also want you to see that this was really a dark time. It was historical, but it was a dark time. Israel, as I said, was subjugated. Rome had been hostile towards uh, the Jewish people. I asked James, I said, from your historical perspective, why do you think there was so much hostility between Rome and Israel? What was the main problem going on at the first century? And you know what he said? He said the hostility was brewing, not only with Israel, but also in Rome due to misunderstandings of Israel and who Israel was and their unwillingness to cooperate with the empire. And so all this unwillingness to cooperate, this desire for sovereignty, total different belief system, you put all this together, it's a very hostile situation. You have these people living in a culture that is very anti Jewish, anti-monotheistic. It sounds very similar to the culture in which you and I live in right now. Very, very similar. And as a result of this hostility, James went on to say, there was this clumsy treatment. And where it was headed was absolute disaster. Of course, by 70 AD, Tacticus will come in and conquer Rome again and destroy the temple and the Jews will disperse. So it's a short period of time here, but it's brewing. 
and it's a difficult time. And people in those situations need one thing. They need hope. The darker the situation brings the greater light. That's why Jesus came into such darkness at a time like this. And he's coming again. I've been thinking about this over my sabbatical and wondering, you know, what, Lord, I kind of, in my early in my Christian life, I believed that Jesus was coming back. I really did. And so I lived my faith believing the second return, the return of Christ, the parousia is going to be in my lifetime, probably before I even get married. It created such an anticipation and excitement. I remember as a young person, as a follower of Christ, I had so much excitement in me because I was living with the idea, with the belief that Jesus is coming back. And he is. I I don't know when. I I can't place a date on it. But I know the first advent, he came at a great time of darkness. In the second advent, it will be a great time of darkness as well. (coughs) It clearly could be in our time frame. And I've been thinking about that. You know, we need great hope. I'm going to end with this story. Something has broken into mainstream TV that is very, very exciting. It's called The Chosen. Over 103 million viewers have been watching this now in its three-season crowdfunded series about the life of Jesus. I'm sure you've all seen one or all of it. But what's amazing is it's not cheesy and it's breaking into, mo- into mainstream TV viewing. There are over 400 million episodes watched of this series. In a time when you go on a Netflix or you, go, you want to watch something on TV, there's not a lot of options that bring this level of hope. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what is going on? How is it that Jesus is breaking through in a culture that feels so antithetical to belief in Christ? And yet, when someone watches it, 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 it changes their heart. And they begin to see, and the, and the question was asked, why is this so successful? What is the reason? And here's the answer. It's an authentic, intimate picture of Jesus. We see through the eyes of people who actually knew Jesus, what Jesus was like. And there's something intriguing about that. People want reality. They do. They really want reality. They're hopeful of it. In a dark time, Jesus is born. And that's where we are today. And that great light is going to shine. A couple things is the way in which I interpret all of this and how I'm going to apply it this morning and this week. Is that in James chapter 5 or 16, we are to become prayer, prayer warriors. It says the effective prayer of the righteous man seeks, accomplishes much. And then it mentions Elijah. And Elijah was this great man of prayer. He prayed, didn't rain for three and a half years, and then he prayed again, and then it started raining.
God used Elijah. God's hand was moved because Elijah prayed. There was great hope in the land because one man continued to pray. And so I think the application is in great darkness. When Jesus comes into this world in the midst of darkness, he's coming in to change things, but we have an opportunity to participate in that by prayer. The greatest vehicle in which we have to cooperate with the plan of God is prayer. It's right at our fingertips. And I, I wrote down four areas that I'm praying for. I'm praying for healing for certain people. Liam is on my list. There's many others, many in this church, friends that I know that need healing. That's hope. And we can be praying for those people. Number two, I wrote down praying for salvation. There are people in my life, tonight we're gonna have a, um, a neighborhood Christmas party, just our street, Via Penali. John Peters lives on my street, he's gonna be there. And um, Denise's idea, this was Denise's idea. She's all into this and it's exciting. We're gonna have, and last time we did it before COVID, people just loved it. They came, they hung out, and they just enjoyed meeting their neighbors, but just being somewhere. I think a lot of those people don't go to a lot of different Christmas events and parties. And so we just have a chance to love on our neighbors. I'm praying for salvation for not only them, for so many other people in my life, and I've listed them. I'm also praying for direction for certain individuals that have come to me asking for help. I'm praying for direction for individuals. There's hope. And finally, fourth, I'm praying for um, renewed faith. Renewed faith for some that have kind of lost their faith in the midst of a dark world. Discouraging, discouragement, isolation. And I'm praying for renewal for them. See, Jesus is the hope in a dark world. He shines brightest in the light. So this morning as we go to communion and we're going to spend some time and we're going to have some music put on so we can just kind of be reflective. I think of Jesus in that moment when he initiated the sacraments for the very first time. It was a dark period in Jesus' life. And as you know the story, he will then go off into the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and ask the Lord not to, 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 to withhold this suffering from his life. And yet, God will allow it. Because in the darkness, the light shines even greater. It's true in Jesus' life. It's true in your life. It's true in the world. And so when we go to the communion, we are reminded of the darkness that Jesus will enter into as a result of being willing to give up his own body for the sake of the world. And when we accept the elements, we're accepting Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for us. And we're remembering that and entering into his darkness. As Paul so beautifully states that, that we live now with the body of Christ, the dying body of Christ in us always daily because we're dying, because we're emulating the life of Christ, bringing hope to a world through our prayer. So Father, as we... Um, come before you now reflectively and dutifully 
out of obedience of what you've called us to do, we come with a sense of reverence and awe that you knew exactly what you were doing. You brought Jesus into a time that truly needed him to bring restoration of hearts that needed, Christian, needed a Christmas miracle. And you will do it again and again and again and again through us. And I pray this morning that we would become uh, warriors of prayer. And then in our prayers, we would move your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. Come up when you desire.